to Disorderly Dogs, the podcast for dog owners. If you find yourself in precarious predicaments with your dog, this podcast is for you. I'm Rachel Harris. I'm a certified professional dog trainer, and I hope to give you a fresh outlook on your dog's behavior and practical dog training advice. Welcome back to another episode of Disorderly Dogs, the podcast. So it kind of feels like it's been a while since I checked in. So I just wanted to say, hey, um, I hope that you all are well wherever you are. Uh, Things are pretty good in Colorado. It's been really hot, really dry, really smoky. Unfortunately, we're experiencing a lot of wildfires in Colorado, so the air quality has not been great, but we've still been getting out and enjoying nature. Um, My husband and I are gearing up to take a trip for our fifth anniversary. We're going on a road trip and the dogs are coming, so I'm really looking forward to sharing that trip with you guys over on Instagram. Um, I also have some really exciting news. So While I love doing this podcast for free, and while this podcast will continue to be free, I have also created a Patreon page where if you are so inclined, you can financially support the podcast and get some awesome things in return. So um, I have it in three different tiers. You can donate $5 a month, $20 a month, or $50 a month, and there are varying levels of um, incentives to become a patron. So I have included a link to that in the show notes. So if you feel inclined, I would be eternally grateful for your financial support to continue bringing you uh, new episodes every week. Um, I hope you all have been enjoying Pitbull stories. It's seriously so much fun to chat with so many amazing people about one of my favorite subjects. So you can expect a new episode of Pitbull stories each Wednesday for the foreseeable future. And as always, I will be releasing a new thought-provoking episode every single Friday. Um, if you don't already follow me over on the Instagram at a good feeling underscore NCO, um, I would love to hear from you. Send me a DM. Um, I don't want you just to follow me and for me not to know who you are. So send me a DM. Let's get to know each other. Um, and if you have any ideas uh, for podcast topics, I would love to hear them. If you aren't already a member of the Disorderly Dogs Facebook group, um, I'd love to have you in there. Um, That's a great place to ask questions, connect with other listeners, um, and get training advice if you need it. So everybody, um, please enjoy today's episode. Um, I just wanted to give a shout out to the wonderful people who have left a review on this podcast. I see you. I read them often multiple times. So thank you. If you feel so inclined, I would be gratefully, uh, uh, super grateful for a a review over on Apple Podcast. It won't take very much time at all. And those reviews help other listeners who need this podcast find me. So everyone, I hope that you all are well wherever you are. Um, Enjoy today's episode. Calling all reactive dog owners. Y'all, I know that owning a reactive dog is daunting. It's overwhelming. It's stressful. But I want to give you tools. I want to make your life easier. So that is why I created Reactive Redefined. Reactive Redefined is an online course for reactive dog owners uh, so that you have the skills to improve your dog's reactivity and to make outings more enjoyable. So if you'd like to learn more about Reactive Redefined, Head over to my website, agfdogtraining.com, click Reactive Redefined to learn more. 
All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of Disorderly Dogs Podcast. So I'm really freaking excited about today's episode because those of you who have been listening for a while have heard me talk about how I totally support responsible breeding, but I also really wanted to to shine a bright light on responsible rescue. So um, Annie, I'm going to go ahead and, and, and let you kind of take over. So tell us about you. Tell us about your organization. Yes, so totally. Thank you first for having me on, Rachel. Um, my name is Annie Cavino, and I'm the co-founder of Brown Dog Coalition, a foster-based rescue out of Massachusetts. We rescue some local and a lot of southern dogs uh, and cats and rehome them across New England. I'm also the proud adopter of my dog, Freckle, and we're currently working through your fabulous reactive redefined <laughs> yes. Oh my God. I love, I love having you guys in the program so much. Okay. So um, I want to just kind of backtrack a little bit. So can you tell me how uh, Brown Dog Coalition became a reality? Yes. So I started Brown Dog when I was 20 years old. I was still in college. I was studying advertising. And my co-founder, who's also my mom, is a retired tech executive who just loves to work. She loves to build. But we both had this passion for helping rescue dogs and volunteering at shelters. And we had a combined 10 years of experience volunteering or working at um, dog shelters locally. So we got to see how things worked, what worked, and also what we wanted to change. Uh, then we founded Brown Dog in 2016 and landed on this foster based model with positive reinforcement policies and what I hope is a really personal adoption experience. Oh my God, that is amazing. Okay, so you guys were like already super involved in rescue work, right? You just were like, okay, this is what we've learned. We think we can do this together to really connect people with the dogs who need them. Exactly. And we started June of 2016. The first group of dogs that we brought up was a mom and her six puppies. And then we got a great connection with a Southern shelter um, in Alabama overcrowded, all of that. And we have a wonderful foster uh, volunteer base in Alabama. We have women who work down there and pick the dogs. They set them up in incredible foster homes. And that's where we get a lot of our information. All of our dogs are in foster homes down south for two weeks. So they get out of the shelter, they get to decompress a little, and we just get a ton of information to help with the whole matchmaking process. Okay, so for those listening who aren't like super up to date on like how this whole rescue process works, can you kind of walk us through this? Like, what does that look like? Right, so we are a foster based rescue, which means that we don't have a brick and mortar shelter. And that's for two main reasons. Um, the first reason being we don't we didn't want the financial overhead of a spot to pay rent for and upkeep and when people donate we wanted the money to go to dogs who need special medical care and the second reason is we wanted our dogs in foster homes so we can get that awesome information of what they're like in a real home versus at a shelter um, so the majority of our dogs come from rural alabama and um, we have all of our fosters fill out a three-page behavioral questionnaire um, that gives us all this information and then once transport is set up 
we bring the dogs up north and we set them up with meetings with adopters in New England, a lot of Massachusetts, um, some Connecticut, Rhode Island, New Hampshire, a handful of New York um, and all that. Nice. Okay. So um, in the early stages, so for, for like your, your volunteers based in, in Alabama, so um, does the, the shelter like send out like, a, okay, we're, we're going to kill because of space today? Like, can you give my listeners more insight into like how that early like tagging process works? Mm -hmm. So there is an urgent dogs list that we do pull from, um, but our volunteers down south, it's primarily one woman named Debbie, and she goes into the shelter and she evaluates dogs based on temperament. We aren't super concerned with looks. Um, we want dogs with solid temperaments, and especially in a shelter space, um, a temperament is uh you can just really tell a dog's temperament because shelters are high stress. And if a dog can be stable in that type of environment, then that's a good cue that they might do well, um, you know, with transport and with these upcoming transitions. So we go in, pick the dogs, and then it's that whole, it's like a two week evaluation period in the foster home. And if there's anything medically um, wrong with them or behavioral things that they need to work on, that's when we'll work it out. Um, all the dogs have to have all their medical taken care of before they come up north. If they need specialized care, um, they might come up north sooner just because Massachusetts has incredible vet hospitals and we do take quite a few special medical dogs. Oh my God. That's amazing. That, okay. So shout out to Debbie. Like yeah. that is amazing. So I, I want to just, I want to talk about this just a little bit more because I think that this is something that I see some rescue organizations do that I, I feel questionable about is like not asking any questions about like who the dog is, like how is their behavior before they're just like, yes, we'll take this dog. Right. And you know, everyone listening, I think you all know me at this point that I'm not suggesting that like we don't rescue dogs who deserve being rescued. But I think that there's this really fine line, right? About like, are we pulling an aggressive dog and are we really giving that dog the best chance at life? Like, I don't know. I don't know. Tell me your thoughts about that. So fosters do a lot of observing in those two weeks. And as we know, dog behavior is just packed with information. And so we ask our fosters, it's this three page sheet, I should bring it up, but it goes over the typical house training, crate training, um, uh, uh, meal times and all of those, but then it goes in depth of resource guarding, any issues with other dogs, play styles is something we didn't integrate until um, maybe like a year after we started because we found out that uh, that was uh, a concern of adopters. They wanted to know how dogs play because that's, I mean, that's a reasonable question because um, you want a good match if you already have a dog uh, matching up play styles. Um, how they are in cars, um, and then just like an open-ended question of just tell us about the dog because sometimes things will come up or a, a foster will type something up in the write-up that isn't covered in the questionnaire but is really important for that matchmaking process. And then we give that whole questionnaire to our adopters 
untouched, whatever the foster says goes because we want a transparent process. Adopters are going to find out sooner or later <laughs> what they're getting in their dog, right? And so we want them to know ahead of time what somebody else's experience with this dog has been. It's not a great predictor of what a dog's going to be like long-term because everybody has a different experience with the dog. The dog will be in a new setting. Um, they'll have gone through a transition, but it gives us information. And I think that's super important to have an informed adoption process. I love that so much. So I wanna hear just a little bit about like how you encourage and motivate your fosters to be active participants in that process. Mm -hmm. The thing that I think has helped the most with foster recruitment and retention has been our pup dates is what we call them. And we post them on Facebook every single day um, because we check in on all of our adopters at three days, three weeks, and three months post-adoption because we really want to know how things are going. And if there's any questions or concerns, we want to be able to address them and not wait for an adopter to reach out to us. We want to keep that line of communication going. But when it's a good update, we'll post it on Facebook and our adopters will, or our fosters will see it. And that's super encouraging because a lot of the times Southern fosters and even Northern fosters, once their foster dog is adopted, they never get to hear about them again. And after investing two weeks or more with a dog, you, you're emotionally invested in their long-term success. And so getting to see that, um, that, that success in pictures and in description um, keeps them going. Oh my God, I love that, right? Like the reinforcing aspect of all of that for the foster so that they get to see their beloved foster dog thriving in their new home. That's so brilliant. And I love so much what you're saying about how you check in on your adopters because I find that the, the aftercare, right? Like what's happening after the fact, I feel like that's where a lot of trouble happens right because like for better or worse the adopter's like i wasn't expecting this this is what's happening and and i i respect so much what you guys do because that is responsible rescue right supporting your adopters long after they have paid the adoption fee right and we want to keep our adopters on track too and so that three day three week and three month mark are good points to touch base about how did the vet visit go? Who have you connected with for training? Um, and just how are you um, working through this transition? That is, it's tough for an adopter and it's tough for a dog. That transition period is, there can be a lot of ups and downs and figuring stuff out. So we wanna be there to support them through it and remind them, hey, you should get to the vet within the first few weeks. And hey, you should connect with a positive reinforcement trainer within the first month. Yes. Okay. So um, I want to talk just a little bit about the timeline here. So is it pretty typical that post that two-week foster period, you have adopters lined up? Typically, we do. Um, we'll post the dogs on our website and on Pet Finder, and we'll start receiving applications. Our application I think is reasonable. Um, it is detailed though. We want to hear about somebody's lifestyle. We want to give applicants an opportunity to share anything they want to share with us too. And so people can make it kind of as short or as long as they want it to be. I really appreciate a thoughtful application, but I also know 
people are filling out tons of applications right now for dogs. Um, so typically we have folks lined up to meet them on the other side of things and they have this information from the foster so they know kind of what they're getting. But um, yeah, they, I think we, we have about a dozen dogs arriving on Friday and mm, 10 of them have people lined up. We have a couple of dogs, the higher energy ones, who people are kind of, uh, I think, waiting to apply for is what I'll say. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So as far as dogs that you're pulling, like, can you just give us more like of a scope of what that looks like? So I imagine there's probably pretty typically like mama and puppies. So um, just to be clear, you all, you always pull mama with puppies. Yes. Yes. That's super important to us as a mother-daughter founded rescue that strikes just such a chord in our heart of if we're going to rescue puppies, we want to know what's happening to mama. And if she's at the shelter, she's coming too. Um, some of the time a litter of puppies is found or just one puppy is found. Um, and that's just how it is. But if mom's there, she's coming up too. And I've found in my anecdotal experience that the moms are just the sweetest. They're sweet, sweet dogs. And um, I got to foster a mom and her six puppies through, I mean, she gave birth in my apartment and my dog Freckle was her doggy doula. Um, and so, yeah, that's, that is really important to us. Yeah. And I think that, you know, um, unfortunately, um, there are some quote unquote rescues, right? And, and there are a couple in Colorado. So Colorado people, if you want to know those rescues, you can hit me up on Instagram. I'll be happy to tell you, but um, who very historically and consistently pull puppies and leave mom. And to me, that, that's just super unethical, right? Like, and you know, I think that there are some exceptions if mom is really aggressive. Okay, maybe we're having a different conversation, but by and large, I think that that's like a huge red flag for me, right? That if rescue organizations are not bringing mom along with the puppies, to me, that's pumping puppies for a profit, not ethical rescue. Right, and also if mom's aggressive, that is a red flag for how the puppies are gonna be too. That is information we don't have for a lot of the puppies that we take who are like two, three, four months old. We have no idea what mom or dad were and we rarely ever know what dad was, but we do wanna know if mom had a sound temperament um, because uh, we can't make a lot of guarantees because we aren't testing for temperament or health or genetics like ethical breeders can. Um, but if mom's temperament is sound, then um, that's a good, a good indicator for the puppies. Um, the thing with brown dog is we have found that a lot of other rescues do like to take puppies. And um, we also know that puppies come with a lot of work and so we prefer a little bit of an older dog um, because puppies can usually get rescue easier anyways. We'll look at the one, two, five, ten-year-old dogs um, because that, I don't know, personally, that's my sweet spot. I love like an 11-month or older dog, uh, especially for first-time adopters. That's what I recommend. Um, I adopted an 11-month-old dog and she was easier to house train. I had a way better read on her temperament and um, you know what size they'll be fully grown. And so if you need those types of guarantees, um, look for an older, full-grown, socially mature dog. 
Yeah. And I think that that's so important, right? And that's something that I've definitely talked about on this podcast a lot, right? Is that like your puppy's behavior is subject to change on several occasions, right? And like, I know that, you know, there's this, this like emotional place where people want to get a puppy and start from the beginning, but to your point, right? A socially mature dog, you're going to get a much more consistent dog that way than a puppy who, again, like behavior is subject to change. Mm -hmm. And with puppies, we have to ask a laundry list of questions, especially with the puppies that we bring up with mom who are, you know, eight weeks old, 10 weeks old, because we have a, you know, very little information about them. So we ask adopters, I mean, we brought up a dog, her name was Rosemary. She was a black lab mix, but with sort of a boxy head. She had softer features though. Um, and she had eight puppies, two were Merle, two were Brindle, um, two were black and white, and two were like a Harlequin. And we had to ask adopters, are you okay if this dog is Catahoula, Great Dane, Pitbull, and, you know, any breed in the mix. Are you okay with a dog who's over 50 pounds? Are you okay with a dog who's over 70 pounds? Are you okay with an active dog? Um, because we don't know what they're going to be. <laughs> yeah, right. And I love your transparency, right? Because that's super integral to making sure that dogs stay where they go. Because if there's any gray area, right? I'll use that, that PC term, gray area. As far as the adopter's understanding of the, the dog that they're getting, I think that that results in a lot of returns later. Has that been your experience? Oh, yeah. And I think that, you know, brown dog's not perfect. And so we have the vast majority of our adoptions are successful, but we do see a few dogs come back every now and again, and it can be because it's not the right fit. Um, they no longer have time for the dog. They can't meet the dog's exercise needs, and that's okay. Um, if it's not working, we want the dog to come back because it's not fun for an adopter to live with a dog that they can't meet the needs of, and it's not good for the dog long-term. Term. We're looking for forever homes ideally and not a for a little while home. Um, and so we do everything that we can to help ensure that, but sometimes it just doesn't work out that way. And we want to keep that door open so that dogs can come back because ultimately, as a rescue, we're here for our dogs. Yeah. So, okay. So I wanted to hear a little bit about like the systems you have in place for that. Okay. So like, say it's not working out for whatever reason, how does that work? Like, does the adopters just contact you and then you try and source a foster? Mm -hmm. So something I wish adopters knew more about was return policies. Um, always check with the shelter or rescue that you're working with what their return policy is because some like satellite rescues don't have a return policy. Um, some shelters don't have a refund policy if that's something that's important to you. So every rescue is going to be different. And uh, within Brown Dog, we have a 10-day, um, 100% like refund return period. And um, beyond that, well, I mean, even in that period and beyond, we'll ask for a behavioral questionnaire back that looks a lot like the foster questionnaire, but asks more, you know, what has been, what are the issues? 
um, so that we can know um, for future placement and for foster placement. And then also medical, if it's been a while, we want to know that they've been kept up to date or what we need to get them up to date on. And then something that comes with being a foster-based rescue, like I said, there are two major you know, bonuses to being a foster-based rescue, but something to keep in mind is we can't always take dogs back right away. We need to find a foster home that can accept this dog being returned in. That's a good fit for them. If it's urgent, we'll make it work. We have in the past, um, but something to be aware of that a brick and mortar shelter should be able to take dogs back day of. We need a lot more notice. Yeah. And I think that it's, it's hard emotionally for adopters, right? Like when they're like, okay, I'm done with this dog. But to your point, like it's really important that you allow the rescue some grace and recognizing that like not everybody can just go and pick up the dog that night. Right. Like, you know, and, and I think that, you know, as far as like taking the dog back to the shelter, I think if people could just chill for a second and like take two days, that can aid so much in the transition so that we're not adding this like stressful thing to an already stressful situation, especially as it pertains to the dog. Right. And we also want to see, we, we want to help problem solve. And so if it is a very specific behavioral issue that's not dangerous, we'll uh, ask about training experience. If it's in our wheelhouse, we might give some advice uh, or we'll refer them to a dog trainer who's, um, it's their expertise to talk about whatever the issue is they're experiencing um, and help them work through it. Because sometimes that's all it takes is, is they just need to talk it out. They just need someone to problem solve with them. And then it's all good. Um, other times they've tried and tried and tried again um, and it's just not the right fit or life just happens and they can't keep the dog. And so we want to be there for our adopters and our dogs either way. And I love so much that you asked for a behavioral report from the adopters before you take the dog back, because that is vital information, right? Because if not, you can kind of be going into it blind, right? And that's not safe for your fosters either. Right. And dogs can change from foster in the South or foster in Massachusetts to being adopted. And people can just have very different experiences with the dog. Um, so it's all uh, subjective and yeah. you need to keep that in mind and take everybody's experience into account to know the full picture of this dog because a dog is so much more than a three page um, behavioral questionnaire and people are so much more than their, you know, one page application. Yeah. Well, and it's, you know, I think that understanding, right, like as an organization that behavior lives in environments, right? So yes, you want to know what's happening in the environment of the doctor's house, but also recognizing that like that may be not ring true in a new environment to that dog. Right. Exactly. I mean, my dog Freckle, she was returned because she had, um, uh, thirst to kill. She had killed an, an opossum outside of her original adopter's house and they said she was fixated on hunting. Uh, I haven't had that experience myself and her previous adopters ended up adopting another dog from us who was a lot more chill, a lot more even keel. Um, and so she wasn't the perfect dog for them, but she's the perfect dog for me. 
And I don't think that there is like an ultimate God of dogs, perfect overall dog for everyone. I think that there are just a lot of like perfect fits, lifestyle fits between dogs and people. Yeah. Okay. So just, so just so my listeners can get a picture of this, can you please tell us about (laughs) your tiny little foster that Freckle is peacefully coexisting with just for the record? Yes. So I'm fostering a 10 year old senior Yorkie Poo, who's five and a half pounds and who loves to be attached to my hip at all times. And her and Freckle coexist so nicely. Again, dogs change over time. Freckle style used to be puppies and playing all the time. And nowadays she's way more down for a senior foster dog who she can just chill out with. I love it. I love it so much. Okay. So, um, I, I wanted, I wanted to just touch on the transport process. So, um, how do you all arrange that? Like, what does that look like as far as like bringing the dogs from the South and getting them, um, to the North? Mm -hmm. So I've done, I've run a transport a few times, me and my mom co-piloting, and we prefer, we opt for a smaller transport. We don't want an 18-wheeler. Again, there's no perfect way to transport dogs. It's going to be stressful, so I don't think that there's like a right or wrong way, Um, but what we prefer to do is a smaller transport where it's mostly our dogs. We might share the van with one other rescue group that's going farther up north, Um, but with a van driver that we know. We work with a couple of different people who have their own vans where um, they're in the cab with the dogs. So if somebody throws up, they can stop and pull over and clean it up. Or somebody has an accident, they can stop and pull it over. Somebody's coughing or barking or uncomfortable, they can work through it. And so there's also AC for the dogs because they're coming from the south and it also gets hot up here up north that we want to make sure that they, the driver knows um, how air is getting back to the dogs and they can feel it for themselves um, that it's working. Yeah, and I think that that's really important, right? Because I know that a lot of rescue, right, like modern rescue, so to speak, um, is transporting dogs from different areas, right? And, and, you know, there's totally a necessity for that. But I think that in the transport process, there's a lot of stuff that happens. And to your point, like, inevitably, it's going to be stressful. But I'd, I'd love to hear all the specifics about how you all are trying to mitigate the, the level of stress as much as you can for the dogs. Small groups, smaller groups, and also crate training ahead of time. That's yeah. super important. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Because I think that, you know, in my experience, right, because in Colorado, um, we get a lot of dogs from New Mexico and Texas, right? Like that's typically where a lot of the rescues are pulling dogs from. And something that's super common is puppies, adult dogs alike coming, and now they have uh, car phobias, right? Car sickness, stuff like that. So I think that what you guys are doing and doing crate training and making sure the experience is the least stressful. I think that that's really important, right? Because, you know, um, a lot of the adopters, especially here in Colorado, right, are adopting dogs so that they can take them to the mountains and go do fun stuff. But if we have a dog who's like terrified of the crate or gets really car sick, that throws a really large wrench into the longevity of the dog staying in the adopter's home. Right. That is something that we added to our questionnaire of how dogs do in the car because it it is really important to a lot of people that their dog can come with them to run errands and go hiking and go go on trips with them. Um, And we have had a couple of people asking how dogs do on boats. We haven't added that question yet because not too many of our fosters have boats, but 
maybe in the future. <laughs> yeah, right. Oh my God. Okay. So I want to transition to your adoption process here. So um, I, I, I find that it's, it's this weird, like double-edged sort of like wanting to have like a really stiff application, but also wanting to be inclusive in your adopter. So can you kind of speak to that? What we're looking for is a lifestyle fit overall, but there's kind of a running joke in rescue circles that the ideal home is adult only, settled in life, retired, dog experience with a physically fenced in, like privacy fenced yard. Um, but like take me for example, I fostered my dog Freckle for two months before adopting her because I was looking for that dog savvy, adult only, uh, fenced in home. Um, and, but that application never came for her. And I realized after two months that I was able to meet her needs through exercise and enrichment and training and a lot of patience and a lot of love. Uh, so I know that on paper I wasn't the ideal candidate and that's why I'm always looking for thoughtful applications of people who are willing to meet a dog's needs because that's what is going to be successful long term. That being said, I really appreciate people who have non-negotiables. Um, they need a dog who has experience with uh, kids or cats or other dogs or all three or whatever it is because they know themselves and their limitations. And I think that's so important when you bring a dog home. Uh, know how much you can handle so that you don't oversell yourself and wind up over your head. Um, because of course, if someone applies and says, I love uh, reactive, exuberant, 60 pound hounds we're gonna match them up with a reactive exuberant 60 pound hound <laughs> well and I think right like the unicorn adopter is elusive <laughs> isn't it and I think that you know um I have volunteered with many rescue organizations and I and I find that that is the hardest line to draw right is like having the those non-negotiables as far as like you won't adopt a dog because x y or z but also recognizing that like your unicorn adopter is never going to come right and like placing dogs isn't going to happen if there's not one i think belief in what's possible but also like being real about like you know just because maybe something doesn't look exactly right on paper doesn't mean that they aren't capable and are going to provide an amazing life for a dog. Right, exactly. And I think that I'm living proof of that. I would have never thought that Freckle could be a city dog. And here she is living it up in Boston. Oh my um, God, kicking ass and taking names. Oh yeah. Um, Something that is a non-negotiable for us as a rescue, something that we're really clear about is that we oppose the use of aversive training tools um, and we're super specific in our adoption contract about what that means. We talk about um, prongs, chokes, shot collars, but we also go further to say um, fear-inducing tactics, uh, kicking, hanging, grabbing, pinning, shaking, alpha rolls, electronic fences. Um, we want people to know exactly what we're talking about in clear terminology because that language can be so cluttered sometimes. And we want our adopters to commit to a life without using those tools 
for the benefit of themselves and for their dog. And then we also ask that adopters connect with a positive reinforcement trainer within the first month, not so that they can learn sit down stay, so that they have somebody in their support system who's an expert on dog behavior, who they can go to and say, hey, my dog's settling in, but they're doing this weird behavior. You know, what's that mean? Or um, this isn't a favorable, favorable behavior. How can I teach them something alternative? Um, because we're not experts on dog behavior. We're experts on placing dogs and rescuing dogs as much as you can be in, in a kind of fluid environment. Whereas the experts on dog training are certified dog trainers. Yeah. And, and I love it so much. Like everyone listening, I, I hope they're just like singing the praises of like, yes, this is a <laughs> rescue. But I think, you know, even further than that, it can be a liability for rescues, breeder, anyone who is placing dogs for a dog to go there, experience, right? Alpha rolling, intimidation, electronic collar, because that dog is not going to be the same. And ultimately, you're always taking dogs back. So if that dog goes somewhere, has this neg negative experience, then you are left picking up the pieces of the fallout from those techniques. Oh, yeah. And we, we have that happen. We've had that happen. Uh, Eight-week-old puppy adopted into a loving family who was misled to a uh, dog trainer who said that they wouldn't use any of the aversives on their dog. And so they were cool with it at first. But then, you know, after a few weeks, they can't get results. And so they bring the aversives back out. And this dog um, was put on a prong. He came back at a year old being... Um, with more, with not even more, he was an eight-week-old puppy when he was adopted out with behavior issues. And um, luckily, they weren't that bad. Um, you know, any, there's going to be fallout from any sort of aversive training, but it, it was at the extent that he was still rehomable. It was, he was still rehabable, and he wasn't a dangerous dog by any means. Um, so, we see that fallout firsthand. Yeah. So um, uh, I, I want you to speak what you're comfortable with, but I, I would love to hear a little bit about like, have y'all dealt with dangerous dogs? Like, what does that look like? Like, what does that look like when um, an adopter calls you and tells you that the dog has behaved aggressively in mm -hmm. whatever context? So when we have, um, we currently have a dog in foster who is returned for being jumpy mouthy, um, which can be scary. Um, my dog Freckle can be jumpy mouthy and um, it doesn't scare me because I know her, but um, people who haven't experienced that or people with kids, it can just be too much of a risk. And so uh, that's information that we didn't know ahead of time. Um, he had settled into his adoptive home and that behavior came out and um, it's really good to know that now. Now we know that he needs a home that's not going to have little kids in it with a dog savvy adopter. He's looking for that unicorn adopter, <laughs> but that's because he has a certain temperament and certain behaviors that um, require that for him to be successful long term. Um, he's uh, special boy. He's super lovable um, in so many ways, but he's not going to be the perfect dog for a lot of people. Yeah, yeah. So have you guys ever dealt with um, more serious behavior mm -hmm. from dogs? 
So we brought up a dog a few years ago now who, again, didn't bite um, anyone before she got to Massachusetts. And when she got here, she was in a foster home and did bite. She moved to a different foster home and stayed there for seven or eight months. And um, her foster is incredible. Her name is Jen. She stuck by her. She has a very quiet home. She has the fenced in yard. She's adult only type of thing. So it was a great setup for this dog. And um, she worked with um, two trainers and taught the dog certain skills like touch and just kept a very low risk environment. Um, I went to school for advertising, but I also am very in tune with ethics and morality and transparency. And so I try and focus both of those when I, you know, market dogs. And that's what I did for this dog. She found her unicorn adopter, a woman who had a very similar setup to the foster of, she was a single woman, fenced in yard, quiet life. And that's where she is. Um, she's, she was one of those dogs who comes up to people, but does not want to be touched. And right. so it can be very misleading of she comes up, she just wants to sniff, collect information, and then she wants to go do her own thing. And so people, she would go up to sniff people and they would pet her and she would do a little snap. And it's like, she's just, I learned very quickly. She's just collecting information. That's that I did a lot of learning with her. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I think that, um, for everyone listening, like that's, that's a gigantic sign of responsible rescue, right? Is, is being honest about who the dog is and their, their capabilities. So, um, has it ever been more dire than that? Like a dog who, um, you didn't feel like was safe, um, to live in a community? Not yet. Um, but in rescue, it's inevitable. Yeah, it really is, right? And it's gut-wrenching and it sucks, right? So everyone listening has, has heard my story about Hilo. We fostered a dog for nine months. We loved and adored him and he was a danger to himself and to society, right? And um, I think that those are the conversations that are hard to have, but I think that it's an important conversation, right? Because in responsible rescue, it is inevitable, right? That you will meet that dog that you have to realize is not safe to live anywhere, unfortunately. Right. And we do take quite a few fearful dogs and fear can very easily um, translate into aggression. And so it's something that we're always super careful about. I think that that is where we have seen positive reinforcement and being risk averse and being force free as much as possible be life-saving. If we can let these fearful dogs move on their own, it's um, safer for everyone um, and it helps them build confidence because they have autonomy. Um, it's just, it's a win-win-win, wins across the board. Yes. Oh my God. It's, it's so true. Right. And I think that, um, I saw, I saw a post on Instagram recently that said that positive reinforcement dog training actually saves lives. Mm -hmm. And it's so true. It is so true because I'm sure you could think of a number of dogs that if you would have forced them, they would have bit. And now you have a dog, you have a bite on the dog's record. Right. And that's, that's a hard sell. Right. Yeah. And I'm sure it comes at a liability for you guys too. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I want, I want to hear what is, what's the future of the Brown Dog Coalition? 
Groundhog's future is um, we're not looking for exponential growth, really. We're looking to stay small. We're rescuing over 300 animals a year. We recently started rescuing cats. And we have a smaller team. We want to keep a balance of quantity and quality. We don't want it to get, like, huge because me and my mom want to be able to know the dogs that we're taking. Um, we want our team to know every dog, know every foster, know every story, um, because that's important to us with a personal adoption process um, to stay reasonably small, but still operating at our fullest potential. That's, that's what it is. Um, and I think we've We've almost hit it. We can still grow in other ways. Um, we have a low cost, or we have a no cost uh, spay neuter clinic that we sponsor down south for our southern community that we rescue from, um, because rescue is a two prong approach. You can only, you know, you want to um, uh, clear the shelter, but you also want to do everything you can to keep the shelter from filling up. Um, and providing as much education we can to um, the folks who follow us on Facebook and Instagram, um, working with trainers, elevating voices, educating fosters, adopters, and just general dog-loving people, I think is all parts of being a responsible rescue. And I'll say it again, Brown dog's not perfect. We're not the model to follow. Every rescue, every shelter is different. Everyone does something differently. Um, which I think can be surprising to adopters, but something to keep in mind for adopters. Know what you want in an adoption process because you're not just getting a dog, um, you're getting a support system, hopefully. Um, you wanna pick a shelter or rescue that has a process that aligns with what you want um, so that it's, it's a good fit. Yes, oh my God, I love that. Okay, so how can my listeners find you, support you, connect with you? You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Brown Dog Coalition, and you can find our adoptable dogs or donate on our website at browndogcoalition.com. Amazing. Okay, so I'll be sure to include links to all of that in the show notes so you beautiful people listening can find it. Annie, thank you so much. It was a total pleasure. Thank you, Rachel. You are doing incredible work spreading incredible information about positive reinforcement training and making it accessible for so many people. So I really, really appreciate everything you're doing. Oh my God. It's amazing to be a part of a community, right? Where we all have this shared mission and we can support each other so that um, dogs can be successful wherever they land. Most definitely. Thanks for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you'd like to learn more about us, please check us out on Instagram at a good feeling underscore in co. You can also find us on Facebook at a good feeling dog training, as well as our website, agfdogtraining.com.